find those sponsors, those mentors, those allies, and express what you're feeling, particularly if you're a minority woman. It's okay to express that you feel that way. I believe that we embrace that we had to be secure and not show any vulnerability because that was seen as a weakness. So feeling like an imposter has been a silent disease. When we start talking about how we feel with people we trust, with our tribe, with our allies at work, they are there to support us. No one is enduring this imposter syndrome by themselves. Many of us <laughs> have gone through that. So reaching out to other people, sharing what you're feeling and what you're going through, and being open to receiving that support and help is crucial, particularly if you're first generation to those spaces. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome to the SIDCast. This is episode number 114, and my guest today is Valeria Allo. I'm going to do something quite unusual for me in this introduction. I'm going to read you a few excerpts from the introduction to Valeria's new book, Uncolonized Latinas. Here we go, the first excerpt. Dragging my tired feet Across the impeccable floor of the airport immigration area, eyes swollen from endless hours of crying my goodbyes to family and friends, I stand across the immigration officer at JFK Airport. It's July of 2002, less than a year since the horrific events of 9-11. A middle-aged skinny man scrutinizes me from behind his black-rimmed glasses as I stand next to my husband, who is as exhausted as I am. Headed to the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth, he asks, looking down at our paperwork, which he holds in his hands, covered by blue surgical gloves. He then looks back at us, his expression difficult to read. Yes, we reply together, wide smiles with pride. After hard work and sacrifices beyond the imaginable, our dream finally came true. His gaze dissipates my smile in a second as I feel my adrenaline pumping and my heart rate accelerating. Hmm, he pauses, just to look back at us and inquire, quote, Mom and Dad paying for school, huh? We gasp, but we remain silent. If he only knew the roads we had traveled, but we know better. Silence is our safe space, and we will not react, no matter how nasty this gets. With a defiant look, he pushes the paperwork and our passports back to us and barks, You can go now. Welcome to America. Valeria Allo has worked for over 20 years in business development, in marketing, in finance, in leading companies across seven different countries. They include Procter & Gamble, Citibank, PwC, TIAA, and others. She's a wife, she's a mother, and she's a leader. In 2016, she had a breakdown, unable to continue the same pace she'd been on since being a student in primary school who had something special and was striving to do everything she could to fulfill that promise and to make her parents proud. She writes, quote, I am laying in bed at home in an affluent neighborhood in New Jersey, recovering from a burnout and a concussion. I realize, as I stare into the darkness, that life was offering me an opportunity to reflect on my journey as an immigrant Latina of humble beginnings 
whose story began in the dust-filled streets of a small town in rural Argentina and who had paved her way through college, higher education, and a successful corporate career spanning two decades. With images of a simple and happy childhood still vivid in my mind, endless summer days, and with family all around, I shiver in loneliness in my bedroom as I ask myself, how did I end up like this? Where did I get lost? I had been raised by loving parents who dreamed beyond our reality as a hardworking middle-class family. As they held my school report card, they would proudly proclaim, you can achieve anything you dream of. You got this. And off I went. I became the first one in my family to move to Buenos Aires to obtain two college degrees with honors and record time. I started my professional career at 18 to pay for my college education, a feat unknown to a family of hardworking parents and grandparents who in some cases were blessed to finish elementary school and in other cases had no option other than to start working at the young age of nine, like my grandmother who would wash dishes standing on a bench to reach the sink. I just kept walking, working, wondering what's next the never-ending what's next. Being the first one to access those new spaces was physically and emotionally exhausting. Big corporate names, large conference rooms crowded with smart multilingual peers from all the continents, and even larger business class plane seats all felt too big for my humble beginnings. Mine had been a frantic, adrenaline-filled life of achieving and conquering, and then achieving and conquering some more. I was always proving myself, pushing beyond exhaustion. As an obedient Latina, I worked hard while keeping my head down, plagued with self-doubt and a sense of unworthiness that only drove me to work harder. From that traumatic time, when Valeria hit bottom, came something very good, a new and deeper understanding of who she was and why that was okay, more than okay. And then she started helping others. Back to her book, quote, Do you know what the Hispanic paradox is? I asked hundreds of entrepreneurs as they stared at me from their classroom seats in what would definitely not be another business workshop. Most of them were immigrant Latinas and daughters of immigrants. This is what I call the Hispanic paradox, I continued. Numbers show our huge power. According to the Census Bureau, there were 62.1 million Hispanics in the United States in 2020, and we will be 111 million in 2060. By then, roughly one in four Americans will be Hispanic. Research shows that we are increasingly educated, and it was recently mentioned in different media outlets that we open businesses at the highest rate across all population groups. We are the engine of the American economy, contributing a massive $2.6 trillion to the U.S. GDP, as per a 2020 Forbes report. This figure is so significant that if we were our own country, we would be the eighth largest economy in the world. I paused to look at them and could tell that most were grasping the meaning of those impactful numbers for the first time. Indeed, according to the sentiment study by We Are All Humans, almost 80% of Hispanics are unaware of our collective accomplishments. Yet, I went on, we are far behind in absolutely all relevant metrics that measure inclusion and access to wealth creation, business size, access to capital, salary levels, career promotions, representation in corporate leadership positions and boards, you name it. We are extremely and increasingly powerful, and yet we have not awakened to our power, and we remain unseen and unappreciated. And that is a paradox, I proclaimed. I paused and took a deep breath. I could tell that I had created the perfect momentum to throw the most important question at them. So, how do we change this? 
Where do we begin? I asked. Change the government, some yelled excitedly. Change the rules so that white supremacy has less power. Others followed. Make the system an equitable one, others ventured. I looked at their flushed faces and offered, in a very calm tone of voice, how about we start by changing ourselves? On this episode of the SIDCAST, the story of Valeria Allo and her personal and professional journey that brought her to where she is today, the founder of Abundancia Consciente, which means conscious abundance. She has designed and facilitated bilingual programs on cultural narratives, entrepreneurship, stress management, and more, coaching women and minority leaders, teams, and business owners throughout the U.S. and in 14 Latin American countries. Here is Valeria Allo. Welcome to the SIDcast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and I am really delighted to be talking to a former student of mine who's gone on to much bigger and better things, Valeria Allo. Hi, Valeria. Hi, Sid. How are you? I'm good. I think I kind of remember you in the class, but I've rediscovered you because of this book that you've written, and then I started to do a little bit of legwork and learn more about your background. And not only is it important work that you're doing, but it's really, really interesting. And it's a story that I think my listeners are going to want to learn about, and I want to give you the chance to share it. So maybe we could start way back when. So where did you grow up? I grew up in General Belgrano. That is a very small rural town in Argentina. Imagine like, you know, rural, rural, like only 10,000 people. We knew each other. It was a very happy childhood in the outdoors, very mm -hmm. special, very different from what my kids are experiencing here in the U.S., and I treasure that a lot, but it was rural, really. It was like coming out of yeah. that, I had to embrace a different thinking. <laughs> How did your family end up there in this small rural area in Argentina? My family came mostly from Italy and also from Germany. And they end up, because of work, they work for the railroad. So they ended up establishing themselves in that area. And my father-in-law was a mechanic, one of them. The other father-in-law was a shoemaker. So they had jobs in this small town that gave them a good living, but they could not really go out of the town too much because they couldn't afford that. So that's mm. how for generations my family established themselves in the town. Really? And when did they come over from Europe? Three and four generations. Yeah. And you have siblings as well? Yes, I do have a brother, an older brother who is a priest in the Catholic Church, a younger brother who has his own business in Argentina. Both are in Argentina. I'm the only one who is here in the U.S. Okay. How does a thing like that happen? Were you kind of the type of kid that was always doing something a little different? And by the way, you just mentioned two brothers, didn't you? Yes. Um, so on top of it, you're the only girl, the only yes. daughter in the family. Yes. I can imagine what that must have been like. So what was it like being a kid? And I mean, when did you start thinking about kind of a whole different world? So, you know, from a young age, I remember my parents, you know, I did very well at school. You know, I was doing really great at school. And my parents started to dream of a better future for me because my father did not have the opportunity to go to high school. He stopped studying at 11 years old because he had to become the main breadwinner for the family. He's an only child. So and my mom went to high school, but she could not go to college. She had to move to Buenos Aires to go to college. And that was not what women did back then. So from a young age, I became, you know, their hope. I still remember them saying to me, you're going to be the first female in the family to go to college. You're going to do great. Like I heard those voices. I grew up with those voices of support from my parents. And I really embraced that. And I really commend my parents for that because they had no idea on how they were going to pay for my education, but they really believed that that was a possibility in my life. And they never, ever, ever 
held themselves back in that sense. They were always supporting me and always encouraging me to go for more. So that's what I remember from, I would say, since I was maybe six or seven, eight years old, very young. Did you feel any pressure that comes with those expectations? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Definitely, yes. A lot of pressure. You know, looking back, I see now how I made them very happy with my report card. They would mm. see my report card and they would be like smiling and so happy mm. and dreaming. So I really, really put a lot of pressure on myself to have the best grades that I could have. And self-pressure mostly. I mean, just to make them happy in a way, you know. So I grew up from a young age, putting a lot of pressure on myself to really do the best that I could and sometimes to work too hard, you know, and it was yeah. not that they were telling me that I had to have certain grades. It was that they were so happy to see them and I was so happy to see them being happy that mm -hmm. that's how, you know, I made it my thing to work very hard. Pressure. Yes. <laughs> do you think that you were actually conscious or articulate about what you just described when you were, you know, 10 years old? Or it was just kind of beneath the surface. So do you remember actually thinking specifically how happy they were that you were doing so well in school and you wanted to keep that going? Actually, that's a great question. In 2016, I had a major event. I burnt out after so much pressure on myself and trying to be perfect in everything and getting the best grades, you know, in life. Mm. As a mother, as a professional, I burnt out. And through therapy is that I saw that. I went back in time and I saw myself putting so much pressure from a very young age to make my parents happy very recently. This happened like a couple years ago. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. One thing that this story makes me think of, which I have seen, is, you know, when someone has innate talent of some type, and in your case, it would have been, I suppose, IQ that helps you do well in school. But for others, you know, it could be artistic, could be anything really. When you know about that, when you're alert to that or others tell you about that, it does put pressure on, I mean, not everyone will react that way, I'm sure, but it does put pressure on you because you have a gift and it would be a shame to waste that gift and to fulfill that potential is something that this is resonating with me because my story is you know, very different in some ways, but similar with respect to, you know, the uneducated parents who had a tough time and my doing great in school and that type of thing. And I don't know that I felt pressure myself and it was self-inflicted in the way you just described. I don't think I ever felt that, but I think I really could see that. It's kind of a weird thing because if you're just say, I don't know, an average kid, you don't have that pressure. Now, many people will tell me, well, that's not right at all because you're an average kid who wants to be great, but has to break through whatever the barriers are. Anyways, what do you think about all that in terms of living up to the potential that you have and when you realize that? So when I went to high school, that's when I got attention from teachers and other parents. That's when they saw that I had potential and it became a lot more pressure. But the problem is the system was not ready for me in a way to even give me guidance. There were no counselors in my school. So I had to figure things out by myself. There was really no one around me who could help me figure out how to even get into college. My parents didn't have that experience. No one around us ever went to college. So it became a little bit of figuring things out as I went, which in turn became a lot more pressure on myself, you know, because when you have no one around you who can show you a roadmap on how mm -hmm. things could go or what you should do to succeed, you are walking blind, really. And it became, you know, a very uncomfortable thing to me to have that drive inside of me to keep up with the expectations of my parents and the people around me and to do well without really knowing where I was going. Yeah, I think that's actually a very, not very common in the sense, not 
that many people are in that situation, but of those people that grow up with less, that don't have privileged backgrounds, I think that's quite common. I felt that, certainly that happened to me, even though I grew up in, you know, in Canada and a very different scenario than yours, but I had no idea about how to leverage whatever skills I had. Eventually, yeah. I figured it out. I mean, I ended up at an Ivy League school as a professor, so I figured it out. But it took a long time, and I don't regret, but occasionally I have thought that, you know, I could have done some different things early on because I was, I mean, I was good enough to do that. I just... I didn't even know they existed. And then I think yeah. about schools, like top schools today, especially in the U.S., that are really making an effort to try to bring in smart, capable kids, really capable kids into college that don't have the background. I mean, you would have been a perfect candidate from what you described, and maybe even me to some extent. And they're bringing them into schools, but they have to really reach out because they don't even know Dartmouth exists. They barely know Harvard probably exists. Yes. It's just not in their circle. I mean, that's on the universities if you want to seek out these types of super high potential talent from underprivileged backgrounds. And it's not a simple thing. Yeah, exactly. And I was reading the other day that 50% of Latinos go to community colleges. And I was wondering how many of those could be really in Ivy League schools. They have no guidance at home. I come from that. I know what that is. You are first generation. You have no guidance and what's even more dangerous is you do not even know you can ask for help and you mm. do not even know where to go for help. So you isolate yourself. That's what's going on for first generation kids that we don't know where to go. We just don't know, particularly if you're an immigrant or a child of immigrants. You just don't know how to use the system to your advantage. And do you think it's that you don't even know what you don't know, if you understand what I'm saying? Yes. You don't even know that there is a whole system here and people and places and things that you can do. You know, I'm an alert that it exists. So your parents were very, very supportive of you, as you've described. And did it make a difference one way or the other that you were the only girl in the family? It made a difference. But when I came to the U.S. 20 years ago for my MBA at Tuck, and then I eventually became a mother, being the only woman in the family, let's just say that when I had children, I felt very guilty to raise my kids away from my parents because Latinos were very family oriented. And being the only girl in the family who has two children, and they are, you know, so far away, like a plane ride is 10 hours. So we're so far away from each other, that created a lot of guilt, another layer that I had to work with, with myself, right. And that was difficult as a woman to leave my parents in Argentina and come here. It was very hard. Yeah. I imagine it's even more challenging in the COVID era when you can't even travel anywhere. Yes, definitely a lot more different. Technology helps. 20 years ago, we did not even have the technology we have right now. Right. right. Well, that was hard. We had no cell phones back then. <laughs> it's crazy to think that we had no cell phones <laughs> and we had to send an email to communicate with them. <laughs> mm -hmm. So technology definitely helps, but still those cultural mindsets, you know, coming from a culture where you're supposed to take care of your parents, particularly when you have access, right, to a higher income and to networks, you are supposed to help your parents. That's what you do as a child of disadvantaged parents. So many emotions mixed up in my experience. Hmm. When you were in high school and you were excelling, were there other kids, other girls as well that were doing very well? Or did you feel like you were kind of on your own? I was kind of on my own and I went through bowling. I endured five years of bowling in high school because I was very determined to go to college and to do well in high school. And I have to say that that was not the interest that other kids had around me. 
and it was very hard. But on the other hand, that was a blessing because it gave me the energy to be more determined to move out and to go to Buenos Aires. I said, I need to be out of here. This is not where I belong, you know, and I love my hometown. That's my place on earth. I lived there for 18 years. And I have the best memories, but I knew that my place was somewhere else and that I had to discover where that was. Yeah, that is very interesting because we have our places where we're from and many people move on and go accomplish whatever they wish to or try to accomplish. And they live in a totally different world. I mean, you live in New Jersey now, don't you? Yes, New Jersey. I can imagine New Jersey doesn't look, feel smell or taste anything (laughs) like the little town in Argentina. Very different, yes. (laughs) Yeah. So you went to college, you got accepted to college in Argentina, right? And was that in Buenos Aires? In Buenos Aires. So my father showed up with two brochures and he said, pick one. Both were private, but of course, so because we have public college as well, which is for free, but my father said, you know, we're going to a smaller one, pick one of these two, Both were Catholic, so my parents felt that it was a safer place for me. And the tuition was, like, I want to clarify this. The tuition for a private college in Argentina is a fraction of what it is in the U.S. So what happens is that I ended up choosing one, the one that I thought was the hardest, (laughs) you know, the most challenging. And I started to work full-time to pay for my education. You work full-time? Yes. Did You you mean you work full-time and then you went to school later, or did you do two things at once? I worked full-time and I attended school at the same time, both, simultaneously, yes. How did you juggle that? Well, let's just say that when, for my work, I had to go to different offices to take the bus and go different offices, and I used to be sometimes standing on a crowded bus reading and learning and studying. I had just a little time to learn and to read what I had to read for school, and I was extremely, extremely intentional about the use of my time, but it was a lot, yes. I was 18 years old. It was a lot. It was a lot. Did you ever question this path that you were on when you were getting up early to hop on the bus to go to work and figuring out when you're going to study for the next test? I just had so much pressure. You know, I used to put a lot of pressure on myself. I just wanted to graduate and to graduate with honors, which I did. I graduated with honors and I got Mm -hmm. two different degrees. But, you know, putting so much pressure on myself that I look back and I'm scared. That's not the experience that I would like my kids to have. Yeah, I was just going to ask you, because you know, we're moving forward in the story, but I'm going to move back in a moment, but how this life experience, especially as we've talked about it so far, affects how you think about being a mom. You know, I became a lot more protective with my kids. I'm trying to shield them from these experiences, even though for me, I believe it was a blessing that I went through those challenges because it made me who I am. So I am aware that I need to let go and have my kids have the experiences that the world will bring to them. I survived. (laughs) I could do it. (laughs) So, you know, I'm becoming aware as a mother, now that my kids are teenagers, that I need to allow myself to let them have their experience and to let them figure things out without me having all the solutions provided to them. Yeah. I mean, that's really an important thing. And so actually your background and what you did might be affecting the path to independence of your own kids. And you're realizing that if they're teenagers, there's still a bunch of years to go. Yes, and definitely it's all about what's the balance, right, as a mother. As a mother who is raising kids in a country that is not the country where I was born. So far, I lived the majority of my life in Argentina. I've been here for 20 years. I'm 45, right? So most years in Argentina than in the U.S., But I'm the first in my family to be raising kids outside of the family group in a different Mm -hmm. country, in a school system that is not what I went through. 
I'm trained to understand the school system here as I go with my kids. It's a new experience for everybody. And at the same time is that as a mother protecting them from hurt. That's what it is, is how can I shield them from any hurt that I went through, even though I know that those experiences made me stronger. So how do I find the balance and allow them to have the experiences they need to have? Probably they know more, my kids, about their own school system than me. That's a reality, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm, they were mm-hmm. born here. So it's that fine balance about letting go, protecting them still, they are still young, but letting go a little bit and allowing them to go through what they need to go through to be stronger. Do you talk to them about your own early years and how you grew up and how different it is from how they're growing up? Yes, I talk to them about it and they love those stories. When I tell them that I had all this pressure, they tell me that they have pressure too. They say that here they feel pressure to succeed. And I'm not sure if that's because they are first generation born in the U.S. from immigrant parents. That could have a component into that. But I feel that also, compared to my childhood, kids here spend a lot more time on schoolwork and at school. You know, I used to go to school only in the morning, and I had the full afternoon for free to do what I Mm. wanted to do and to do some schoolwork, but not so intense. I can see here is a lot more intense than in Argentina, at least comparing to my own childhood. Right. I mean, do you think it's that much better what we do in America? And we pile on the hours, of course, because after school, there's enrichment. You know, there could be tutoring for kids. We go all out. We're just short of what they do in Hong Kong and parts of China. But maybe right after that country, we're probably number two in terms of the intensity, at least for upper middle class families. Yes, definitely. The intensity feels to be much higher. I can see that. The system is different. I have to say that in Argentina, even though the time commitment is not so intense, that's why I could work full time while attending college. I'm not sure that's an experience you can have here in the US. I really don't know. I still believe that if in Argentina, when you wanted to succeed and be determined, you found your way. And the system was not perfect. My experience in high school was not really great. I was not very well equipped. When I landed in college, I had to work even harder to bring myself up to speed and to the level of other kids who were coming from amazing high schools in Buenos Aires. But, you know, I figured things out. You figure things out. You find your way. Right. So during college, did you know what you wanted to do? At what point did you figure out, you know, you were studying, I think, business and finance as well, right? Yes. So the first career, finance, is a five-year career in Argentina. I did that for my father. I know that. You know, my father really, his dream was to become a finance person. And I did that for him. (laughs) I graduated, you know, continue with my pattern of making them happy, right? That's what I had been doing all my life in my academic life since I was very young. So I continue with that pattern, made them happy and then moved on to do marketing, which is what I loved. Did you know what you were doing in real time? Again, sounds like you didn't. You just did it and it was almost in your DNA at that point. Yeah, let's just say that my father has a passion for numbers Mm -hmm. and I embraced that passion for numbers myself. So that's why I pursued a career in finance. But when I got to study taxes, I said, I don't think this is for me. I will (laughs) complete it, make my father happy, graduated with honors and moved on to study business administration, which is what I really wanted to do. But I discovered that as I went probably in the fourth year out of five. That's when I said, I don't think this is for me. Yeah. Hmm. But your father was fine with that. He was just probably off the charts happy to see that his dream, his one child that, well, the other children, I'm sure, are very accomplished in their own way, but the child that he was highlighting and encouraging, especially a daughter, 
going to university, graduating with honors, regardless of what you were doing, although it was business, business administration, finance. This is not, you know, art history, which there's nothing wrong with art history, let me tell you, but it's much easier to see the practical career path when you study something like finance or business. Yes. And, you know, see something that I just remembered is the initial conversation with my parents was like, you either study business or you study law or medicine, mm -hmm. the traditional careers. And it's interesting that I see that today with first generation Latinos who are going to college and their parents didn't have their experience. Those parents tend to support those more traditional careers because there is this cultural belief that that's where you can do better, that you can make mm -hmm. some money. You know, so parents usually support those traditional careers. If I had come to my parents saying that I wanted to be, I don't know, to study philosophy, maybe they would have said no, you know, not really. We are not supporting that. I'm not sure what would have happened. So in a way, I had three paths in front of me and I chose one and I went with it. At the end of the day, going after finance, I had that passion for numbers since I was young. So it gave me the tools to become more well-rounded. So I believe that everything at the end of the day happens for a reason. Even though I was figuring things out as I went and I said, I don't think this is for me, I will pivot. That had a reason to be. That's the way mm -hmm. I see it. So you worked in Argentina for a period of time after college. What led you to say you want to come to the U.S.? And not only the U.S., but to go to graduate school in the U.S.? So my corporate life in Argentina started because I saw a sign at college that said PricewaterhouseCoopers is hiring. And I had no idea what PricewaterhouseCoopers was, but I showed up for the interview and I was hired. So that's how my corporate life started. I had no idea where I was. So I quit the job that I had in a small accounting firm. That's the job that I had embraced in year one at college. And I moved on to PricewaterhouseCoopers. Having a conversation with one of my friends, he said, you may want to explore Procter & Gamble. So I said, and what is Procter & Gamble? They are hiring and they are hiring in marketing. So I left my career in finance, PwC, interviewed with marketing with Procter & Gamble, and I was hired. And that's the first time that I heard about an MBA because many kids in Procter & Gamble aspired to come to the US for an MBA. So I got married in 2001 and my husband and I got very serious about pursuing an MBA. Not only because we heard that from kids around us, but also because one of his best friends came Came here to study in Michigan. And he called us and he said, you guys should consider pursuing an MBA. And we said, let's check it out. That's exactly how that happened. So it was probably November and we started our applications, which is very late or even later than November, December, January. We were in the last possible round and we looked into which are the top schools, you know, that we would love to go to. And we selected maybe four or five because we were so late in the application process that there were not, you know, many options in the great schools that we wanted to attend. So we applied to Harvard, to Duke, to Georgetown, and to Dartmouth, to those four. And that's how it happened. We were accepted in Duke, in Georgetown, in Dartmouth. Harvard said no. And there is another one that I cannot remember in which we were waitlisted. And we started to debate with my husband. So which one should we choose? Duke? Dartmouth, Georgetown. And Dartmouth caught our attention because reading the information online, because we were not even thinking about connecting with alumni in Argentina. That's not, you know what I mean? Is when you don't understand the system, mm -hmm. you don't know who to ask. So it never occurred to us until we were interviewed by alumni that we had that opportunity of reaching out to people and asking about their experience. So essentially what caught our attention about Dartmouth is the small school environment, big, big in the sense of huge 
and top school, but also feeling a little bit contained, you know, not thousands of students. I think our class mm -hmm. was only 250, if I'm not wrong. So that was very attractive to build that sort of relationship with other people in a new country, to make it more personal, to really get to know others and to start building that network of support. I think in your book, you write about actually coming over and going through customs and immigration when you landed. Could you share that story? <laughs> yes. So essentially, we had to take huge student loans. And, you know, we had to demonstrate that we had some money at the bank. And to do so, we had to essentially beg our families to give us all the statements they could so that we could show that we had some financial backing, that it was not 100% student loans. There was a requirement. I don't remember now the percentage, but we didn't have the money personally. So we had to ask everybody in our families to adding up all those statements that we could show <laughs> that we had some money to pay for our education. And we never, ever visited the U.S. except for our honeymoon for a week in Miami. So we never came to see schools. We made decisions without visiting schools, which is mm -hmm. crazy. <laughs> and we showed up with our huge bags and we left the country. Living in Argentina was very emotional. It was a one-way ticket. We had no idea what to expect. We knew we were coming to a great school and that was extremely exciting, but it was also scary. You know, it was a new culture. We never visited in person, as I said, so we had no idea where we were going. When we landed in JFK, exhausted, emotionally depleted after saying goodbyes to family and friends, the immigration officer, he was not very welcoming. He that's their job, not to be very that's welcoming. Their, but yeah. yeah, and this was 2002. Right. So after 9-11, right. it was very recent. So I understand. So he essentially took a look at the paperwork and he said, oh, you're coming to Dartmouth, right? And we said so proudly, we said, yes, smiling and happy. We're coming to Dartmouth. It's a dream come true. And he said, oh, so mom and dad are paying for your education, right? <laughs> like we were coming from a rich family and we just stayed silent. We didn't say anything. What could we say that we had like a pile of bank statements showing a number, you know, <laughs> what could we say? We were coming from hardworking families, making our way into an amazing school. We knew we had to be quiet and silent, said, yes, thank you. Have a great day and move on. So that was our welcoming into the U.S. and very different, thank God from the experience we had when we arrived at Dartmouth at the Tax School of Business and Sally Yeager was there waiting for us. Completely different experience. Thank goodness. Yeah, definitely getting embraced by a small community and especially a type of school that is all about community orientation. When you were at Dartmouth, at Tuck, there were other classmates from Argentina as well, I would assume. Maybe not very many, but some, right? Yes. Do they have similar or very different backgrounds, say, to you and your husband? Most of them had a similar background. Most of them their families had already gone through some sort of higher education, at least in Argentina. But there were a few who were also first generation like us. And did you bond with them more or not really because you all had things in common? And of course, it's also about meeting people that are very different than you. So it's not that that's your only group. I'm so happy you're asking that question because I have to say that I was so intimidated and I felt so inferior in a way when I came here that I used to only surround myself with Spanish speakers in the beginning. I was intimidated, you know, to approach people. And I was very self-conscious about my English. I thought that I could not really understand what people were talking about. Even though I had studied English in Argentina for 10 years, being immersed in the culture here, 
and people speaking fast with <laughs> slang, I felt quite lost in the beginning. So my safe space was to be around people from Latin America. However, what's extremely interesting is that those of us who were first generation and were going through adjustments and challenging, feeling, you know, uncomfortable, we never had those conversations among ourselves. It is only up until recently that I interviewed one of my classmates from Peru for my book mm -hmm. that I learned that she had a similar experience and she felt challenged and very, very uncomfortable when coming here. She adjusted faster than I, I have seen that, but I never imagined that she was coming from a background of struggle the way she told me recently. So we didn't speak to each other about where we were coming from, which I found very interesting. It's an interesting observation that people think they're the only ones in a situation and no one else could possibly have the same or, you know, some people may have had even more difficult circumstances and others, maybe the majority having a much easier pathway. But we're immersed in ourselves and our own problems and our own, yes. our own challenges. It makes me think that there are partners, allies, supporters all around us that we don't even know they exist. And that's a shame. Yes, that's a shame. And with the research that I conducted for my book, it was very clear that there is a cultural silence among Hispanics. We come from cultures of struggle, so we accept that struggling is what it is, and we all go through that, and we do not even talk about it. It's so ingrained in our experience, in our past, that we do not even talk about our stories of struggle. We don't share that. And I believe there is healing when you share those stories. And also the other part of that is being aware that the more you share your experience, there are so many allies around us trying to figure out how to help us. And Latinas not sharing their stories and not reaching out to allies, you become isolated. So one of the main insights from my book is that when you look at Latinas today, we are paid half of what non-Latino white men are paid. And not many of us are in leadership positions. So the invitation from my book is to look inside and understand how have I been holding myself back? Because that's what I did when I came here. I held myself back. When I went to reunions at Tuck and I connected with my classmates, I said, I'm sorry that I missed connecting with you. You know, I am sorry that I missed getting to know you because I held myself back. I did not reach out. I wanted to be safe. So I built a bubble around me in a way. And I am now a lot more intentional about reaching out to people, building those relationships, the network. That's extremely important. That enriches my life. But I wish I had seen that 20 years ago when I came here for the first time. I completely missed it. And I think you're saying you weren't the only one, that this is a broader thing for Latinas in general. But why does that happen? You said, you know, create a safety bubble, protective, which, by the way, are words you use to describe your own uh, kids. And I'm wondering why... And where that comes from? That has ancestral roots, I believe. What I have learned through the research that I conducted in the last years is that those of us who come as immigrants from colonized cultures, right, from countries where struggle is something you see daily, poverty is something that you see around the corner, right there. You see that struggle, poverty, lack of access. You see that every day when you grow up in Latin American countries. And when you come to the U.S., there is a first world economy as an immigrant. And this is also the experience of children of immigrants. You feel that you have nothing to contribute. It's a machinery that it seems to be working perfectly. You come in sometimes with challenges in communication, language, and you believe that, you know, I'm not sure what I can bring to the table. You second guess yourself. 
And very educated Latinos go through the same thing. I'm not even talking about those who didn't have access to education. Very educated Latinos had the same experience. It's a cultural and very ancestral limiting belief that we have not much to contribute or what we bring to the table doesn't matter, that we don't have a voice. We are now awakening to our personal and collective power, but there is that ingrained cultural belief of things have to be hard for us in a way. Is We accept that success comes with sacrifice. We have seen it. We have done it. Those who are children of immigrants have lived that at home. They experience food insecurity, domestic violence, even alcoholism. There is a lot of trauma in the community that is unspoken, and that ends up being a barrier for how much we can confidently contribute to the society. We hold ourselves back. You know the term, of course, imposter syndrome. Yes. Uh, that's a very common term. It sounds like there's an overlap. I think you're talking about something even deeper in that it has these ancestral, deep cultural roots. But what do you think about that idea about imposter syndrome, which of course means that people believe they don't really fit in, that they don't believe that they deserve the seat at the table, even though they've got the seat because they actually are very accomplished. That's very well ingrained in the Hispanic culture, particularly immigrants and children of immigrants. And that's coming because you're a first generation. When you go home as a first generation to those new spaces and you do not have anybody, you know, you grow up in a different environment and the people you saw around you growing up were different. I mean, you didn't see your parents having access to this amazing education or leadership position. So in a way, the person you thought you were going to be, and that happened to me growing up, the person that I thought I was going to be, I'm a completely different person. And I have access to spaces which I never even closely dreamed that I was going to have access to. It was not even in my radar. So when you access those spaces that are very different from what your family achieved, you feel that you don't belong. This is not who we are. This is not what my culture is about. That's what you start thinking particularly if you're the only Latina in the room, right? It becomes like, what am I doing here and what can I contribute? It's real. It's real and it's something that I have awareness of myself. And in the past, I had to remind myself continuously that I belonged, that I deserve. After a lot of work that I have done with myself, now that's more ingrained, the belonging and the deserving. But at some point, it had to be a constant reminder particularly when I was in situations that were uncomfortable, when I had to do like presentations or I had visibility or leadership on a project, I had to support myself to remind myself that I belonged and that I earned my place. I was there because I worked really hard to get there and I deserved it. In the seminars and coaching and work that you do with others, I'm sure you tell that story because they'll connect to it. But what can people do? And what you've shared just now is you keep reminding yourself, yes, you do deserve to have this spot, that you're actually good, you're capable. And that's important, but that takes a long time. I think you've said as much. What else can somebody do to kind of break through? And this is even more general, not just to the specific context we're talking about. For anyone that has a degree of imposter syndrome, how do you break out of that? How do you keep that from letting that hold you back? So on one end, it's about giving yourself the best tools to access the system. So we know that education and keeping yourself up to date with everything going on is very important. That gives you the confidence that you have the tools that you need to navigate those spaces. So that access, right, to continuously improve ourselves and keep working on ourselves, keep ourselves up to date to be able to engage in those conversations. That's number one. 
But then number two, there are many, right? Number two is to reach out to others, to have those conversations with others and find those sponsors, those mentors, those allies, and express what you're feeling, particularly if you're a minority woman. It's okay to express that you feel that way. I believe that we embrace that we had to be secure and not show any vulnerability because that was seen as a weakness. So feeling like an imposter has been a silent disease. When we start talking about how we feel with people we trust, with our tribe, with our allies at work, they are there to support us. No one is enduring this imposter syndrome by themselves. Many of us (laughs) have gone through that. So reaching out to other people, sharing what you're feeling and what you're going through, and being open to receiving that support and help is crucial, particularly if you're first generation to those spaces. And there is also a third one that I would add that is to become extremely intentional on the thoughts that you hold and your inner dialogue. We are usually very harsh with ourselves, our worst critic. I come from that. <laughs> hmm. And I had to learn to give myself grace. I had to learn to support myself in the same way that my parents were supporting me way back then, which that made a huge difference in my life, to learn to support myself in the same way, to talk to myself with encouraging words and drop the criticism. We don't do ourselves a good service. Any by, favors. Yeah. yeah, by talking to ourselves in that way. So that's the third one that is extremely important, to be aware and conscious about the way you talk to yourself, your inner dialogue. The challenges you're talking about, how do they manifest themselves differently between men and women that are Hispanic? That's a great question, and I'm loving that you're asking that. So within the Hispanic community, gender roles are quite set. And women my age are the first generation breaking through those gender roles. And when you look into the story of our countries and how our cultures evolved, women in the U.S. had access to those spheres of decision and influence much earlier than women in Latin America. Today, what I have seen even in the Hispanic community in the U.S. is that machismo still exists. I have witnessed how opportunities, contacts are shared within Latino men, and sometimes women are not included in those conversations. It varies by state. Some states are different than others, but I have seen that within the Hispanic population. So the gender roles are still ingrained in our unconscious and they drive our daily interactions, our decision-making and who you do business with within the Latino community. Then when you take a broader picture at how gender roles impact the career of Latino women in the U.S., I have found that, and this is also my personal experience and the research that I have conducted, I have found that we try to check all the boxes. We want to keep our cultural gender role of being the nurturer, the mother, the ones who keeps the home safe and food on the table. And we also have this cultural belief that frozen food is no good for you. (laughs) We have that. (laughs) So we need to make fresh food every single day and put that on the table. That makes you a good Latina, right? On parallel to that, you have your profession, your full-time job, increased responsibilities, leadership, visibility. So when you try to check on all those boxes and try to be perfect in all, you know, the new opportunities opening up in the U.S. and trying to comply with the gender roles that we bring from our culture, it becomes too much. It becomes too much. It's just impossible to handle all of that pressure. It's too much. So what happens? So what happens is that you need to learn to delegate, ask for help. (laughs) 
you know, choose your battles, be intentional with your time, resource to other people around you. It takes a village. It does take a village. I'm learning that. Raising kids in the U.S., it takes a village. And my village, my parents are back in Argentina, so I cannot just have them drive home and help me out. I had to figure things out differently. And that's where it's important to build a community, a network of people that you trust, that you can resource to and ask for help. Yeah. So it sounds like it's ongoing. There's no end point here. It's a learning process. But I want to go back a little bit. So after you graduated with an MBA, you went back to work. Were you working full time when you had kids or do you take some time off? I took a little time off, but I couldn't handle it. I, you know, started to feel guilty. You couldn't handle it. (laughs) Yeah, I started to feel guilty. I love being with my children. And also at the same time, I wanted to be out there in the world. I couldn't be home. And by then, I had invested so much of my energy in my profession. And we had recently moved to a new place that I didn't have a lot of people around me. So I was by myself with a baby in the house. And it felt so isolating. And I wanted to be out there. I wanted to be with people. But I didn't want to leave my child in a daycare all day. So I started to work part-time. I started to consult for different companies. And I had that flexible arrangement that at the end of the day became flexibility in terms of working weekends and crazy hours. That type of flexibility, you know, because they had to accommodate everything. Yes. Yes. That's actually the thing a lot of people don't realize. With flexibility and entrepreneurship, comes no rules or you got to really be strong in creating some limits because or it could be any time and needs to be all sorts of different times if you want to keep going at a certain pace and then you know we think about people working from home much more now and hybrid and covid and it's gotten much more difficult i'm wondering on that topic of covid because you're advising and working with many people doing workshops with latina probably professional women more than any others how has covid hit your community Any different, do you think, than how it's hit many other middle and upper middle class communities where there are professionals in the household and kids that may or may not be physically at school? At least that was the case last year. Yes. So the Latino community was particularly hit by COVID. A larger proportion of the community is involved in jobs that are the frontliners, hospitals, you know, those who had to be in person. They had no choice. The food industry, so they had to be in person. So that created a challenge because of the kids not having school. It ended up resulting in many women quitting their jobs. So the family income got reduced. Or these Latino families have difficulties with accessing childcare, good childcare for their kids. There are so many barriers for the Latino community. Good healthcare, childcare, and those became more evident during COVID. Now, for middle-class educated families, it also threw a big challenge because of, you know, even though we have access to more resources and education, our belief that we need to do it all was, you know, very evident during COVID. Mm -hmm. When the kids were at home and, you know, we were working, we were taking care of the house, and now we were also helping kids with their education, that became extremely challenging. Actually, there is a report that I read that says that we added 30 more hours per week between household chores, childcare education, and our work. 30 more hours a week. That's too much. And it falls mostly on women, by the way, those additional hours. So yes, this community was particularly hit, significantly hit. And I'm still seeing the impact of that. We are not out of it yet. When did you start this new career, I'm going to call it, that is really all around some of the things we've been talking about and this transformation, this uh, adjustment, recognizing the challenges of Latinas 
because you were working in companies and business post-MBA for quite a while. When did this happen and why did you decide to do this change? So in 2016, I burned out, as I said in the beginning, mm-hmm. essentially trying to comply with all these roles that I loaded myself with and doing it by myself didn't work out. So in 2016, I stopped working for six months to look for what I wanted to do in life, what I really wanted to do. I think it was probably the midlife crisis. (laughs) I'm not sure what it was, (laughs) but it was such a blessing because I took six months off to figure out what I wanted to do next. And something that I had to learn from scratch back then was to take care of myself first so that I can take care of others. And I took a good look inside into how I had done things in my life with so much pressure, trying to be the best, never showing weakness, vulnerability, being the strong one, the one who had the answers throughout my life since I was a kid, from that early times in General Belgrano in my hometown. And it took a good look inside into those patterns of behavior that I wanted to change. I wanted to have a life where success can happen with balance, that I do not need to sacrifice myself, my health, or my family. So that's what I embarked myself into back in 2016. So it was a lot of inner work, a lot of inner work. But, you know, I attended one event at the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce to get to know people in the community. That was the first time that I stepped into a community. In corporate, I was usually the only Latina. And I got, you know, a hunch that there was something in the Hispanic community that could be interesting for me. So I attended an event I loved it. And I attended a second event and I was invited to lead an entrepreneurship platform for the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce in New Jersey. And I said, yes, I was coming from a background of innovation, not necessarily education, but innovation. And I followed my gut and I said, yes. And that became see, the most transformational experience I ever had in my life because for the first time in the U.S., after 15 years being in this country, I felt my belonging to my roots, my belonging to a community. I embraced my Latinidad, which so far I had not embraced so much. And it became a passion for me to work with the Hispanic community. And the more that I work with them to develop their businesses, the more that I saw the patterns that I had endured myself. Those patterns of limitation, of self-doubt, of not deserving, of working too hard, of not asking for what you need, not having a voice. I saw that very clearly and I became very intentional about helping my community. In the same way that I use those tools to help myself, I said, I think I can help them. And I started to bring that information about self-empowerment, self-awareness, working with your mindset, your inner dialogue and helping yourself succeed to different workshops. And one thing took to another, and I ended up writing everything, all of this in a book. (laughs) Which we'll include in our show notes, and I think people are going to find it really interesting and important as well. You know, I wonder whether, you know, you described you had this breakdown, and you were on a fast track trying to do everything before that, and you were kind of forced to step aside in a way and start to do some of this work. If not for that, do you think that you would have eventually found your way to this kind of work where you're helping others, really building on everything that you've done, not just done, but who you are as a human being is all kind of part of what the work is you just described in a nutshell. But if it wasn't for this breakdown, would you have gotten there, do you think, eventually? Or was this epiphany that happened because you almost had no choice at that point? I think that the breakdown had to happen for me to pivot into my purpose because I saw this when I was 20 years old. I saw that I was supposed to do this, what I'm doing now, Mm -hmm. when I was Mm -hmm. 20. But 
I was in the middle of my career at college. I was working and I saw that and I wanted that. But I said, that's not for me. I'm not prepared. That's not what I do. But life slowly took me where I am. But I definitely saw it when I was 20. And I put that aside for 20 years until life made sure that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of amazing as a young woman that you saw this. How is that, that you saw that this type of helping others to build up their own capabilities, both in business and just in their own personal life? That's kind of young to see a thing like that. Yes, I had a great experience in my 20s. So I've been working with these personal development tools from a very young age. And at 20 years old, I got immersed into one of them. It's similar to Landmark, but it had a different name in Argentina. And I went through all of those classes, trainings. I ended up volunteering in that organization. So I embraced those tools for myself. And at some point when I was 20, I said, I want to be one of those facilitators. I want to be one of those you know, in the front of the room, helping people with their own mm -hmm. mindset, with their own challenges. That's how I had that vision so early. I had the experience and I had the vision, but then I just said, I'm not good enough. I'm not ready. I cannot do this. And it took 20 I, years yeah. for me to embrace that. More than 20. Yeah. <laughs> and 20 years, it's a long time, of course, but it's that life experience that enables you to do what you're doing now at such an authentic and meaningful level. Yes. And, you know, since I was a kid, very young, six, seven, eight years old, I used to love to be around people who who were the underdogs in a way, the underserved, the kids that no one wanted to hang out with. I was always with them and I just wanted to help them. That's what I did from a young age. I can now see, right? I didn't see at that point. So it became something that I embraced from a young age of how can I help those around me who are isolated, who others see as underdogs, who others may not see their potential yet or the great things they have inside to offer. How can I, you know, partner with them and help out? That was something that I experienced from a very young age. Yeah. So do you have an aspiration of building what you've now created into something that's a bigger business where you're training others to do the same thing and actually creating you know, a multifaceted, let's call it a consulting firm, focusing specifically on helping Latinas do better in life and in work? Yes, that's my vision for what I'm doing. And I'm taking it one step at a time. This is quite recent in my life, if you think about it. And the book is coming out now in December. So everything is quite new in the sense of making public what I have been doing for a long time. <laughs> but that's what I would love to do. To me, it's like, how can I be of service? How can I be of impact to more Latinas in the community? That's why the book became a reality. Because doing workshops, you can do so many workshops, right? It's personal energy, it's time. How can you expand the message without necessarily having to do workshops with people in the room? And the book was born out of that. So the more I could help Latinas in our community, that's my mission, my purpose. We have 30 million Latinas in the U.S., 30 million, and a third of them are younger than 18 years old, and most of them are first generation. So we need a lot of help. And that's where the allies also come in because there are not enough Latinos out there in leadership positions and visible roles to help all the young Latinos that are up and coming. There are not enough Latinos. So we need to work together. And, you know, when you talk about the book as a way of, you know, you could only do so many workshops, that's called scaling and leveraging, isn't it? To use business school type language, yes. which I have found to be the case as well in totally different, well, not totally different, but somewhat different venues. So how do you feel today as we're talking about where you're at and where your head is at and your role as a leader, as an innovator, as an entrepreneur, and as a mom and wife for that matter? 
So what I see is that I take one day at a time. I learned that lesson very well. I learned to put myself first, as I said before, and then take care of everything else. And my family is very important to me with my kids who are teenagers, who are the first ones in our family to go through the educational system in the U.S., to set them up for success, support them is extremely important. And my business, of course, is very important. And the way I see my business expanding is with balance so that I can still keep taking care of myself, taking care of my family and taking care of my business, everything in a balanced way. Writing a book has been so much hard work and intimidating. And I learned to do it one word at a time, one paragraph at a time. And that's how I approach my life and my business. One word at a time, one paragraph at a time, one client at a time, one workshop at a time. The expansion has to be built slowly with balance. I have too many balls up in the air, right? And I want to keep being happy and healthy and fulfilled. Mm -hmm. So that's a big lesson that I learned in 2016. There is a way to do it differently. And it's one step at a time, keeping an eye on the balance and my personal wellness. That's really terrific advice and perspective and interesting to use the metaphor of writing a book, which I hadn't heard before, having written a bunch of books. In fact, it is one word at a time, and sometimes those words don't come out at the pace that you want them to in the form that you want them to. But if you're not patient, you can never write. That is for sure. And I guess that's what you're saying as well, that you have to be patient within yourself. And I like this notion of taking care of yourself because you're the central node in all of those endeavors, all those activities that you're talking about. Valeria, a really interesting conversation. And so you graduated, you were my student almost two decades ago. And this yes. type of conversation is really getting to know you at a level I couldn't possibly have known. And I've done this now, you know, the people that have been on my podcast are very, very diverse in all kinds of backgrounds. And I'd say maybe 10% our former students, so not really a lot. But the thought that's occurred to me now is a thought I often get, which is, wouldn't it have been something to get to know some of these students when they were here, but at anything close to this level of kind of communication and honesty? But I don't think it could happen because there's yeah. a different stage of life. And then there's a huge power difference when you're a professor versus a student. And there's a huge difference in interest. Students don't necessarily think they have such a compelling story to tell. And maybe when you're 27, yes. it's not quite as compelling. But you know, I think your story at the age of 20 was pretty compelling. It's just something I occasionally think of when I have a chance to have a conversation like this with someone that was sitting in my classroom you know, 15 years ago without any understanding of who that person is relative to what not just me, but now my listeners have from your sharing today, Valeria. Thank you, Sid. And you know that I have to say that back then, I was not even aware of the power of sharing my story. Hmm. And everybody has a story to share that is extremely powerful. And 20 years ago, as a newly arrived to the US, I was even trying to figure things out, who I was, my identity, you know, where do I fit in? So it was probably too much inside my own shell to share of my life experiences. And, you know, life has such a beautiful way of enriching you and taking you places and creating all of these experiences that then become your story. But definitely I have to say that I became intentional about sharing my story only recently when I learned that it supports others. That's when I became intentional, when I learned that my journey can really support others who are going through the same and who can find some light and hope if they are going through challenges because they can say, if she did it, so I can. 
Right. What a great sentiment and a great way to end our conversation. Valeria Allo, thank you so much for being on the SIDCast. Thank you, Sid. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I'm really excited to be bringing you season three and really appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single episode. I welcome all feedback and I'd love to hear from you. I've gotten some great commentary over the course of the first two seasons and lots of great suggestions as well. You can contact me via my website, www.thesidcast.com, or you can email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The SIDCAST is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.